Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Paul Bloom. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, professor emeritus of psychology at Yale University, and an author. People do strange things to feel pleasure. Eating spicy food, having rough sex, watching scary movies. On top of that, they make huge sacrifices to find meaning, like having children or starting a business or training for a marathon. This suggests that perhaps there is more to living a good life than simple hedonistic pleasure. Expect to learn the four ways that we enjoy suffering, how the sexual fantasies of men and women differ, the true red pill around whether more money will make you happier, what you can learn about mindfulness from a dominatrix, why people love to watch sad movies, how a life without discomfort will become hell, and much more. This is a conversation that I'm having so much at the moment. The fact that a hyper-convenient world leads to us actually being miserable, that challenge is inherently something that makes us feel good about life. And Paul's gone so deep with this, finding what he's called the sweet spot in between pleasure and pain, the amount of suffering that we need in order to live a meaningful and enjoyable life. I really hope that you enjoy this. If you do, check out the book. It's a really good read. It's linked in the show notes below, as always, and share it with a friend. Share this episode with a friend. The only way that this show grows is from people like you sharing the episodes with other people like you. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastic fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modern wisdom. This episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation, vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, 
and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Paul Bloom. Paul Bloom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. My pleasure, man. Why are we talking about suffering today? I have come up with a new book uh, called uh, The Sweet Spot, uh, The Pleasures of Suffering, A Search for Meaning. And it is a topic which I have been occupied by for many years. And I think it's absolutely fascinating. I think suffering connects to all sorts of, provides some nice explanations for some very odd and puzzling behavior connects to movies, connects to sex, connects to purpose and life. And, um, and it's just, and I think also just tells us some interesting things about human nature. What's the, so core... you're the man, you're the man to talk to about this. <laughs> yeah, true. What's the, uh, core message of the book? Um, well, when I started the book, I, I was interested in puzzles about, um, what, what psychologists call benign masochism. So why do people like spicy foods or hot baths? or um, scary movies or sad movies and all of that. And I was just focusing on the role of, of um, explaining, the message was gonna be, here's why we use pain and suffering to, to increase the amount of pleasure in our lives. But as I began to do this more and more and look at this and read philosophers and read psychologists, I began to realize that a lot of the suffering we choose isn't in the service of pleasure, but in the service of other goals like meaning and morality. So pretty late into working on a book, I think the message is um, what you could call motivational pluralism, which is people want more than one thing. We want pleasure, but we also want morality. We want meaning. And that's one bit of the message. The rest of the message is that sometimes chosen suffering of the right sort is just what we need to get us there. How do you define pleasure, meaning, and morality? It's a good question. Um, you could, you could start off by defining it in kind of a rough and intuitive way. So roughly, pleasure is things we seek out. We go, we make us smile, make us happy, give us a glow. You know, so if, you, if you're hungry, a hot foot Sunday is pleasure for most of us. Uh, you know, sex, being loved, nice artwork, a beautiful walk and a beautiful day. That's pleasure. Um, morality is doing the right thing. And, you know, doing the right thing, which could mean involve fairness and justice. It could mean helping somebody. It could mean harming somebody. Uh, applying some sort of moral, moral rule or principle. And meaning is a different animal altogether, connected to the other two. But, but meaning is um, a pursuit connected to that has significance, that uh, takes a while, that influences other people, that involves goals and sub-goals. And most of all requires... Um, some degree of difficulty, 
sometimes physical pain, sometimes anxiety, sometimes suffering. If you have a pursuit and you find it easy and natural and fun, it probably isn't a meaningful one. It could be a fun one. So, you know, a fun pursuit is eating some M&Ms, going for a nice walk. A meaningful pursuit could be raising children, starting a business, uh, going to war. A moral pursuit could be helping a friend in trouble, you know, trying to punish somebody who did something wrong, trying to, to fight for justice. And they're all related, but they take you in different directions. What are some of the ways that people use suffering to get pleasure then? Yeah, there's a lot of ways. Um, the simplest answer is probably simply contrast. So um, one of the tricks we can do is we can experience a bit of chosen pain and so as to make the subsequent experience more pleasurable. You know, you eat really spicy food that burns your mouth and you take a swig of beer and that feels magnificent. Um, you, you, um, you go into a really hot sauna or hot, hot, say a hot finished sauna, you dive into a cool lake and then you are in bliss. Uh, or, or take a broader time scale. You see, um, you must've seen John Wick. Yeah. yeah don't so the beginning of the movie is they kill his dog. No, it's in a trailer, not, not a spot. They, they kill his dog. And it's actually very sad. He loved that dog. He's a retired assassin. And he has a dog. His dead wife gives him a dog, loves his dog. They kill the dog. Some Russian mobsters, this bad thing happens. But then he goes and takes his revenge and kills everybody in a, in a comic explosion of homicide. Um, and the, the second two thirds of the movie, is enjoyable because the first third sets up, sets up the contrast. And it would be a mistake for you to say, oh, John Wick, great movie. You know what would have made it better? If you took away the dog part, which is really a bummer because it got to be so much fun because you had the contrast in the beginning. And there are people who do these, these um, big data analyses of movies and stories and, and, and novels and plays. And a very typical pattern is things get bad, 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 and then they get better. And there's a pleasure to that. Inherent in that, you talk about the importance of the ordering or the sequence of yes. suffering and pleasure. Can you dig into that? Um, there's all these interesting facts about ordering and time that I think we know in our gut intuitively, and we often play with it. But here's the simplest. You have bad stuff, you have good stuff. That's the order you want it in. So uh, I'm doing movies today. So, you know, Shawshank Redemption. This guy spends 20 years in prison for a crime, presumably didn't commit, although there's, there's weird interpretations of the movie where it was unclear. But, um, and then, and I'm, I, this is spoiler day, but, um, but he escapes and spends the rest of his wonderful life in a, in a Mexican beach. And, that's a, and you feel wonderful at the film. Imagine it were reversed. You know, he's living on his Mexican beach, having a wonderful time with his, with his friend uh, and everything. And then he ends up in prison for the rest of his life the same amount of time, that would suck. And in general, there's sort of a balance, we want things to get better. There's these studies which um, ask people about the kind of jobs they want. So you want a job that starts off low paying and gets higher paying, higher paying, higher paying, or the reverse. And imagine it so happened that this is calibrated so that maybe the one that went down gives you more money in total. Still, who wants that? You want things to get better. And so there's sort of the dance of time and sometimes we, sometimes we do the dance of time to give ourselves pleasure in kind of clever ways. So one of my favorite studies is by George Lowenstein. He asked people this great question. He says, imagine you could kiss your favorite movie star in the lips, fully consensually and pleasurably. 
And then he says, when do you want to do it? Now, psychology 101 says, right now, self-control is hard. We're greedy for time. Economics 101 says, right now. Because, you you know, the, you, you, the same sort of temporal discounting, better get $10 today than $10 tomorrow. That's why we have interest and so on. People say, two days. Two days. And it turns out that what people want to do is they want to savor the idea. They want to they want to take some time to savor in anticipation of, of, of the pleasure they're going to get. Similarly, for bad things, even though economics and psychology says put them off as long as you can, and sometimes we do that. Sometimes we try to get them over with because we're worried about the experience of dread. What like? Pardon me. What like? In what ways would we do it? Oh, with? I uh, I take a, a dentist appointment. So under some circumstances, you just put it off, put it off, put it off, put it off forever. But sometimes things weigh on you. And if you ask people, you want to do it now or you want to do it tomorrow, they'll say, now, hit me with it now. Let's get it over with. And it's true there would be a rationality to doing it tomorrow because, you know, maybe you'll die or something. And then you're lucky and you have to get the appointment. But, um, but if, you, if you do it uh, now, at least you don't have to live through the, the dread. I wrote a newsletter about this a little while ago and termed it yeah. anxiety cost. So in the same way as you have yes. opportunity cost, the anxiety cost of, it was a justification for me, if someone has a daily habit that they want to do, let's say it's meditation or it's some stretching or it's walk the dog or do, whatever it is, I argued that because your uh, daily requirement resets essentially every morning as soon as you wake up, that's the beginning of your day to complete this. If you spend most of the day reminding yourself that you still need to do that thing later on in the day, you have spent that day suffering this anxiety cost. Whereas if you yeah. get your morning routine locked in and you meditate first thing, you just get to bathe in the fact that this yes. self-righteousness up on your high horse for the rest of the day being so congratulatory about the fact that you meditated and did your stretching first thing. I love giving advice and it's the primary bit of advice, which is do your most important thing right away in the morning. And, for, and most of all, I guess also the hardest, you know, if it's easy and fun, you could, you could, you could wait a bit, but, and for me, it's writing, which is, you know, I, I'll, I want to write an hour each day. And if I don't do it in the morning, I could put it off and I feel bad and so on, but you just, you just want to get it done right away. And, you know, there's a satisfaction in it. It's, it's an example of something. There's all sorts of activities, um, working out and writing are two real go-to examples that aren't that much fun when you, when you do them. You know, I don't know, maybe your mileage may vary, but, you know, you, there's always, you know, there's always email or Twitter or hanging out with friends and so on. But having done them gives you a certain satisfaction. You talk And about, that's another reason for the, for the contour that we, that we want. Yeah, so that's contrast. But you also talk about signaling and mastery as well. Yes. There's, um, there's all sorts of things. So one, of the, one, one reason... And then there's one other which we'll mention, but one way you get uh, pleasure from suffering is the pleasure of a good name, uh, Jeremy Bentham's term of good reputation. So sometimes we, we choose to suffer to impress others with how tough we are. You know, um, yeah, I, 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 I was once sat with my son and some of his friends and they started having a wasabi eating contest. And, you know, they wouldn't have done it by themselves, but all the guys are there and they wanted to show how tough they are. In a religious context, you may want to show how pious you are. And uh, there's all sorts of religious rituals involving a lot of suffering and pain and deprivation, but you do them to show, you know, look, 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 look what a believer I am. Look how, how faithful I am to God. Um, sometimes 
a very different thing is when people will cut themselves or harm themselves as a cry for help. And there you're not signaling strength, you're signaling uh, need. So you have, you have a, a, um, signaling as one thing. You have the joy of mastery. It feels good to be, um, to be in control of something, to be able to sort of exert your will over your body. And this is one important contrast I make in the book, which is absolutely critical, is I'm talking about chosen suffering, unchosen suffering, bad stuff that happens to you is a very different thing. So C.S. Lewis gives a great example of uh, fasting where he says, you know, um, if you're not eating because you have no food, you can't afford any food or someone's locked you in a room with no food, that just sucks. That's just, you just suffer. Try to make the most of it, but that's awful. But if you're not eating because you're fasting, then you could feel proud. In fact, C.S. Lewis, being C.S. Lewis, disapproves and says, you know, you shouldn't be so proud of yourself. Just, just you know, worship God and get over yourself. But, but still, there's a sense of pride. And, and one other thing, since we're going through the list, that pain can do is it could be an escape from, from yourself. It can, it can be escape from consciousness. Um, you know, I described my book the first time I, I ever sparred in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and rolled with somebody who, you know, was like everybody else in the gym, younger and stronger than me. And so it's like two minutes, three minutes. And I realized afterwards that during that period, I thought of nothing else. I didn't worry about my, my, the class I had to teach or the embarrassing thing I said to my partner, or money problems, whatever. I didn't think, I wonder how I'm looking, and everything like that. I was totally immersed in this. And difficulty does that for you. You know, pain does that for you. Of all the bad things to be said about pain, one good thing is it certainly focuses the attention. You told me a story the last time that we spoke about a, a dominatrix who said, <laughs> was the quote, nothing captures attention like a whip? You have a good memory. Yes, yes. I don't know why we were talking about say I wasn't even studying sadomasochism then, but it's such a good quote. Um, yes, um, yes. You know, he says something like, "You hold it up, and people's eyes cannot cannot move away from it." And this is, you know, there's I think a deep insight here. There, there's a, a wonderful theoretical paper uh, on art asking the question, "Why is so much art through history grotesque and unpleasant?" And the answer is because art is in a constant battle for eyeballs. You know, yeah, you want people to notice your artwork. And, um, and something that's grotesque or unpleasant captures, captures it. You know, you, you look at something like, I, I don't know, um, uh, something, a grotesque scene of, of cannibalism or, or, or torture, and it just captures you. And, of course, movies work in the same principle. Why do we like scary movies? I think there's different reasons, but I think that there's one general answer to that, which extends to why we like scary things in general, which is our mind is naturally drawn to worst case scenarios. In some way, it'd be a lot of fun. You, you know, you're free, you have nothing to do. You just, you, to think about good stuff, to imagine yourself winning a prize or somebody falls in love with you and everything. But those don't pose any puzzles. If I win a great prize, I'll say thank you and accept it, and that's great. But what's useful, and I think this is one part of my book where I do get sort of adaptationist. I think where, where there's a Darwinian advantage to thinking about the bad stuff, to thinking about what happens when the world goes to hell. 
to think about what happens when, when, when your life gets messed up in some way. An advantage to thinking about these things is that it, um, that it basically gets you to prepare and ruminate and deliberate. And there's some evidence that people who have positive fantasies actually make out less well in the world than people who have negative fantasies. How do you mean? Thinking about bad stuff. Well, this is some stuff by a, by a psychologist, um, blank on her name at, at NYU. So she tests these people who are looking for romantic relationships. They're, they're, you know, they're single, they like to find a partner. And she asked them, how often do you fantasize about being in love? How often do you fantasize about being with the, the man or woman of your dreams? And the people who say a lot tend to be the same people that six months later don't have a partner. The people who are in another study, she asked people who want to lose weight. And he said, do you ever think of yourself being fit and strong and everything? Yeah, a lot of times. And the people, again, the people who think about that a lot tend to be the people who don't lose as much weight. And her theory of it is that for these positive fantasies, what you do is you sort of, you, you kind of consume the pleasure in your imagination and you're less motivated to do it in real life. If I really fantasize a lot about having a girlfriend, then maybe I try less hard to have a girlfriend. I got my fantasies after all. Now, negative ruminations don't have that problem they are they are always focused on the worst case and i think to go back to your question one reason why we like scary movies is that um they are imaginary and imaginative depictions of worst case scenarios so take you know take zombie films zombie tv shows you know you could make fun of the idea and say you really need to prepare for a zombie apocalypse but these movies and TV shows are never about zombies, actually. What they are is about what happens when the world goes to hell. And there's no government, there's no police. The dangers in zombie movies are almost always people, not zombies. And so we're drawn to this. And then there's other ingredients. So, so you might think fear is negative. But if, and, and in fact, there were some early theories that said that the people who like horror movies aren't as afraid as, people, as the people who hate them. And it's trying to be total nonsense. People who like horror movies are just as afraid as people who don't like them, but they enjoy being afraid. And for any negative emotion in the right context, particularly a context where it's imaginary, so you know there's no real danger, it can be a source of pleasure. You can enjoy being afraid, you can enjoy being angry, you can even enjoy being sad. You can even enjoy physical pain under the right circumstances. Well, there's people who go out of their way to watch sad movies the ones that yes. make them cry and make them ball their eyes out yes. at the end. It is interesting to think about the fact that there's this, it's almost like a sandbox, a, a safe playpen in which we can indulge ourselves in some of the emotions that are at the extreme areas of life. You know, I would wager that there'll be some people that will go through life and some of the most extreme emotions perhaps that they feel in their entire lives will be during watching movies. Yes. Yes. Or that's right. Um, or related to this will involve events that are so far away from them to, um, to be effectively fictional. When Princess Diana was killed, uh, died in this car crash, people mourned to an extraordinary degree. And there were people who went on TV and said, uh, you know, this was the worst thing that's ever happened to me. When my mom died, that was sad. But oh, when Princess Diana died, that was, that was really sad. We, we consume these emotions and I think it, it, there's a safety to it. You know, the death of my child would, be, would, would, would destroy me. 
But the death of a, of a child in a, in a movie, I could vicariously feel sadness. But at the same time, I know nothing bad has really happened. I could feel afraid, but I know nothing scary, nothing dangerous is really about, about to, 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 to happen. So you're safe. In some way, people have described the pleasures of imagination as a form of safe play. I suppose now, that uh, yeah. I suppose that BDSM is kind of similar to this, but it's got it's acting on a number of the different pathways. So you have the contrast effect that you have something that is yes. painful and it continues and it continues, and then the relief is the moment at which the pain no longer is pain, and therefore that's pleasure. But you also have this presence, this escape from self. Perhaps yep. you have a signaling aspect to whoever it is that you're with. Look at how perhaps strong or resilient I am. Yep. You can't hurt me. And then maybe there's even a, a, a essence of mastery in that you are put into a situation that you know your physiology should be responding to with panic. Um, let's say it's uh, asphyxiation or let's say that it's being hit. The usual response should be something other than the one that you are giving, which is arousal. Yes. In some way, BDSM is a perfect storm where, where all of the different theories of, of the pleasures of pain kind of come in and click. And, and that raises the question that I do not have an answer to, which is why do some people like it and some people don't? Um, and same with some people I know like to cry at movies, some people not, not, not even close. Some people like spicy foods, others don't. And I'll be, I'll be totally honest because I, I often think about this. Um, we have no theory as to why some people are this and some people are that. You know, it used to be thought that BDSM is kind of pathological and you kind of look for people with other disorders. It turns out not to be true. You know, people who engage in that are no more likely to suffer psychological problems or have in some way bad personalities than people who, who don't. And at some level, the appetite for it is very popular. More often in the imagination than in the doing. So, you know, as I was doing research for the book, I was looking up uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, which is a BDSM story. And it was the most popular book of the last decade. Like this, from 2010 to 2020, that was the most popular book. The second most popular book was the sequel. The third most popular book was the end of the trilogy. So there's definitely an audience for this sort of stuff. Though I, I imagine that the vast majority of these people wouldn't engage in anything serious. You looked at the sexual fantasies and how they differ between men and women. I think that was Seth Stevens Davidowitz's work, and yes, he's a, yes. a past guest on the show. That guy is an animal of a data scientist. What did you What did you find out from his work? Weird stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's weird, weird stuff. Um, there's there's from his book. There's another book called something like Ten Billion Wicked Thoughts. And basically, if you, you, you know sex research into what people like, you just ask people. And, you know, it's very difficult people to be honest. They're often embarrassed or sometimes confused. But maybe one of the purest um, manifestations of what people like is what they look at when looking at pornography. And so what, uh, so what this data analyst did was he got hold of Pornhub data, of which there was a lot of. And, in fact, Pornhub data not only um, looks at the search terms, but um, – but it also does Google Analytics to make a very good guess as to whether you're a man or a woman, how old you are, whether you're gay or straight or bi or whatever. And, and there's all sorts of surprises. Um, but the biggest surprise to me, which I don't have such a good story about, is that contrary to everything, well, everything I would have expected, 
um, he finds that women tend to search out violent sex or humiliating sex far more frequently than men do. And this is weird because men are just on the whole far more violent, with more violent taste and entertainment in general. Um, a lot of these depictions involve the victimization of women. And you would imagine then women would just naturally stare away from it. And I don't actually fully know what's going on. It may be, again, a worst case scenario thing, which is you're drawn into things which are sort of worse things. And, and it, it, it exerts a pull over you. And that's what we might be saying. There's definitely an element of this, I think, with certain women where domination and the strength of a partner and the power of a partner is a turn on. And perhaps seeing that and experiencing it vicariously is something that they find arousing. It, it may be in some cases. There, there's, there's some evidence that women have, that some women will describe them as having rape fantasies. And, but one thing, but there's two things about them. Obviously, you know, there's a distinction between reality and, and fiction here. These are not real life desires. But also they're highly stylized. The aggressor is typically very handsome. Um, there's some degree of mutual attraction to start with. And some way, some, to some extent, I think that's a fantasy that both men and women have, which is of being so attracted that others lose control around you. And it may connect with notions of, playing with notions of domination and submission. Honestly, of, you know, I could give you like a thousand papers on a lot of, I'm saying, I give you 10,000 papers on effective money on happiness. When it comes to questions like, like, sexual desires and so on the data is for the most part pretty poor we just don't know that much and i think this topics have been taboo for a long time and i wish there was more research into them what is the effort paradox ah the effort paradox is actually um developed by uh, the, the term came from a friend of mine uh, mickey inslet who's at university of toronto not not far from me and the paradox goes like this typically creatures obey the law of least effort and this is um, this shows that this was in the animal psychology world for a long time. So you know, if there's food in front of a dog and the dog's hungry, it will go to the food. It won't walk around in circles around the food. And you know, it makes sense. If you're thirsty, you reach for a glass of water. You won't like move move your hand and do figure eights around the room. You take the, the least effort. You know, you go the most direct path. And we and animals and humans avoid effort. Um, so, you know, if, there's, if, if, you're, if a dog is hungry and there's two bones and it wants the bones equally and one's close to it and one's far away from it, they'll go to one close to it. Common sense. The paradox is sometimes it's not true. So sometimes we seek out effort. Um, and everyday life is full of it. I mean, here's a, an entirely unsexy example. I do crossword puzzles. I sit, I sit around on my iPad and I do crossword puzzles and I try to spend some time trying to figure it out. I do not do it. Uh, I'm not going to attract any mates with my crossword puzzle skills because it's a, it's not really a mate attracting kind of thing. And B, I'm not even that good at it. And, but I enjoy it. It's kind of fun. And then, you know, and then, and that's such a paradox. Why would I, why would I exert effort and, and, you know, deal with the opportunity costs of all the other things I should be doing just, just to do a crossword puzzle. And, you know, put aside people who train for marathons or triathlons, you know, uh, it makes sense if you're doing it because you, you know, you, you have a chance to become a world champion. Well, there's a, like a logic to that, but the vast majority don't they just do it in order to, to, to do it. And so the effort paradoxes, um, why sometimes 
is effort attractive as opposed to to something which one avoids and there's different answers um one answer is what you were talking about before involving the feeling of mastery and accomplishment um another answer connects to um the feeling of flow and this is um this is the work of uh mahali chiksentmei who sadly passed away a couple of weeks ago and he points out that there's a sort of special positive feeling not exactly pleasure but a feeling of satisfaction to be engaged in an activity at a level that's you're not bored but also you're not freaking out you're not too anxious is right in between um the best definition of flow i've heard is you're in a state of flow if um if you just forget you, you lose track of time you forget to eat you forget to pick up the kids at school in a state of flow and there's something to flow states which are immensely attractive to people those are very hard to get so he does these interviews and some people say they never have in their whole life because it requires effort and work to get to a flow state and it's very easy to sit on sit on the sofa and watch netflix and eat corn chips you know getting some rock climbing in or sustained musical practice or writing poetry or even a deep discussion with a friend that could be tough but that's that's what we find worthwhile are you familiar with stephen kotler's work no i'm not okay so he is a researcher in the area of flow but he comes at it from a much more biological perspective so mm -hmm. what he's doing is he's trying to find the biological prerequisites that cause us to fall into flow and he's got a book out that came out earlier this year called the art of the impossible and it's a, yeah. a a primer a peak performance primer for how to get into flow it's interesting that you said that you like to write early in the morning because they've done studies and they've identified the particular type of brainwave patterns that you have when you're in flow and his argument is that it is significantly easier to get yourself into flow if you are doing the thing that you require to, to be in flow for as short after waking as possible, because you're nearly there. I'm sure that you'll have I heard yes. some of the stories. I think it was, was it Newton that used to go to sleep with ball bearings in his hand on a chair? And then as he finally dropped off, the ball bearings would fall out of his hand and fall on the floor. And that would be his little way to kickstart himself into a flow state because it got him into those brainwaves, switched off the default mode network, allowed him to see different connections that he wouldn't have done usually. But The Art of the Impossible by Stephen Kotler is a really good primer um, for understanding flow states from a much more biological perspective. Really good. Uh, I'll check that out. I mean, I, I read flow when I was young and man, my feeling reading the book, uh, reading his, his first popular book in that book, was envy. And he describes these, these rock climbers who spend hours and hours just lost in an activity, or these expert musicians, or these dancers. And it's just, and, you know, I would love to aspire to even close life of flow, he describes. And the insight of a morning seems right. My, my own sense is the first thing I do when I wake up is I make myself coffee, or else I'll just fall back asleep or have a headache. But before the coffee kicks in, there's this dr somewhat drowsy state where you can just get lost in something. It's like, you know, meditation for people who are crap at meditation. And you just find yourself just flowing into it. And then, um, and so, yeah, that sounds great. You know what I else? Mean, I've, the the more really, you get of that, the better. Another thing that I found when I wake up, because I wake up to the same uh, radio station every morning, which is Classic FM in the UK. And when I wake up, the news always comes on for about, two minutes and if i let myself stay awake with the radio on with the alarm on for longer than two minutes whatever the song is the first song that they choose that song is in my head i shit you not for the next three hours 
it is fucking imprinted in there. It's like someone seared it into the back of my mind. And I'm so, I'd love to speak. I must email Stephen about it and find out what it is about the imprinting time that you have first thing in the morning. It is like nothing else. It's like virgin fresh snow with a couple of footprints in it. And I can't hear anything except for whatever that song was on a morning. And that's it. I'll hear it as I walk. As I'm doing my morning walk, it'll be to the rhythm of my feet on the floor. I'm like, oh my God, this is like being trapped inside of my own mind. It's crazy. It's a great metaphor. It's to some extent when we wake up, it is it is just fresh, fresh snow. Sometimes you wake up and for the first, at least for me, for the first second, two seconds, I don't even know where I am. Sometimes you wake up the very morning waking up and you maybe you're caught in a dream. You don't even know who you are. And then the day accumulates and then it piles up on you. And um and pretty soon by the end, you're, uh, you're snow that, you know, that a whole elementary school is stomped all over. <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay, it's so a new theory as to why we need to sleep. Why is suffering important for a meaningful life then? Yeah, so we've been talking about, about pleasure, and, that, and, and that's not all. So, so here's the wrong way to think about it. I think the wrong way to think about it is, oh, I want a life of meaning. So I want to suffer, you know, I want to, um, I want to run a marathon and I'm really hoping to get blisters and to get ill and to, to, you know, to, to fail or whatever. It's not like that at all. I don't think people court suffering in that sort of way. You know, you you might train for a marathon. You just really want to get better and run, run the marathon. But at the same time, people know that if it didn't have the possibility of failure and difficulty and struggle, it wouldn't be seen as meaningful. You don't want to fail. But on the other hand, the chance of failure has to be part and parcel of the thing. You and I are playing poker. And, and, um, and if I sit down to play poker, I want to win, obviously. But if I knew I was going to win, if failure was impossible, I wouldn't even bother playing. It's too boring. You know, and there's this, this insight. Uh, all, it shows up all over the place. Uh, Twilight Zone episodes and Zen parables and everything. I'll, I'll tell you the Zen, my favorite one. Alan Watts um, is the guy who brought Zen to to, um, to to the UK or to the United States. I'm not sure. Anyway. British guy, but I don't know where he landed, yeah. Yes, yes. I don't know where he landed. But but uh, but so he tells this story. Uh, and I, I remember this because my partner and I were, were uh, watching Avengers Endgame. And it came up at the beginning. They had a commercial for, for a bank. And I'm doing whatever, watching it. And I said, Wow, they had a voiceover saying the story. What the hell? So I went home and Googled it. And, and this, this, the story is, imagine you fall, fell asleep and you found yourself in a lucid dream. You could dream whatever you want for 75 years. He said, well, you have so much fun. You do everything hedonistic blowout. You wake up, you live your day, and then it happens again. And he said, sooner or later you say, well, this has all been a lot of fun, but it's getting a bit boring. I want to throw some struggle, some obstacles, some failure some difficulty in it. He goes on, he talks about that, and he says, and if you think about it, maybe that's the life you're living now. You know, you, you, the, the life you would have chosen if you could choose any life, and all the difficulties and failures and disappointments, that's part of, part of the best life. And I think instinctively we appreciate that. We appreciate that a life full of meaning is a life full of risk and struggle and pain. Can you remember the Twilight Zone story that you put in the book? Because that, yeah. that is awesome. You get all the good ideas from the Twilight Zone. 
this um this mobster this thug i think a killer dies and to his surprise he's seemingly in heaven he's in like some gorgeous hotel suite and everything and he, he has a little angel by his side and and he says you know what is this well you know welcome to the afterlife and i said wow i'm hungry i wish there was a feast in front of me and boom there's a feast in front of me and he he bets on sports and he always wins beautiful women flock to him and he just loves it and he stops and he says, says this is this is ridiculous i can't play a game i can't I'm, I'm going insane here and finally he says to his guide he says you know i want to go to the other place that's where i belong and he says this is the other place this is hell and hell is where you get everything you want Man. i mean it's kind of it's a little bit twilight and i think hell would involve you know hot pokers and being burnt in sulfur and that sounds pretty bad too but but it's certainly not heaven it's certainly not heaven and i i try to remind myself you know life life contains a thousand disappointments and for each one you wish i i wish this wasn't happening you know my book number one on the bestseller list if i could snap my fingers i would do that but you got to realize and as you become an ally you realize it it can't work that way it's it's this great paradox you need you need the specter of failure and difficulty and struggle and disappointment you know um and this shows up all over the place it shows up it sounds like i'm just kind of spouting stories but it shows up in they did this study of two million people uh and they asked people what the, their about their jobs and then they asked them how meaningful is your job and the most meaningful jobs are hard jobs the, the most meaningful jobs being a member of the clergy working as a medical professional of all different sorts is meaningful social worker educator and often these jobs are low status they are often low paying but they're meaningful because you're helping people you're making a difference because it's tough the countries that um that where the citizens say they're most meaningful i mean there's so much happiness research saying what countries are the happiest and the answer is the richest countries the richest safest best countries living are the happiest no surprise at all but the countries that have the most people say they have the most meaning are the poorest countries a meaningful life is positively correlated with low gdp not high gdp and with with you know political turmoil and it's hard to make a living and you don't trust people around you and i think there's different argue, different uh, theories as to what's going on here but one thing is that struggle and meaning are intertwined and if i had to choose i'd rather live a life in a in a sort of prosperous country where things are going well but but um there's some human needs that don't necessarily get scratched uh in a prosperous world what was the least fulfilling job i think it was parking lot attendant <laughs> no one likes a parking lot attendant no one likes to put like, you know, I'm sure there are worse jobs, but it does feel like, you know, it's hard to, to extract meaning from it. I mean, I'm going to get all, all Zen here. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of those Zen things to say that any activity, you know, scrubbing toilets, cleaning dishes and everything in the hands of the right person can have meaning. There's a story that's probably apocryphal of John, President John F. Kennedy turning um, uh, NASA. And he stops by and there's a janitor sweeping in the corner. And he says to the janitor, so what do you do here? And the janitor says, I help put men on the moon. And you know, that's, 
there are stories of, of people who do um, who do who clean up in hospitals who see their job as they should see it as a job of dignity where they're helping sick people. And um, and then I've seen people. I have had three people close to me quit uh, tenured professor jobs. And I'm thinking, this is a job with unlimited freedom, autonomy, pays pretty good, you know, and you get to pursue whatever you want. And 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 each of the three has said, I find nothing of value here. No meaning, no purpose. And so your mileage may vary. What's the relationship between meaning and pleasure then? Um, you, you, you can, they are separable. There are people who live lives that they say are of great meaning and they don't have much pleasure in them. There are people who are, who, who's, who are, will describe themselves as hedonists and say they'll live a life of great pleasure, but there's no, no meaning or purpose. But they tend to be correlated, actually. It's kind of good news. Um, you might imagine you have to choose one or the other. But if you ask people, how happy are you and how much fun are you having? And you also ask them, how meaningful is your life? How much full of purpose is your life? The answers will tend to correlate. There are people who are kind of high in both. Now, there's always trade-offs. This is one of the, this is one of the things about motivational pluralism. If, if, if motivational pluralism was wrong and all that mattered was hedonic pleasure, then um then life would be simple just to seek out hedonic pleasure but you have to balance things you have to decide whether or not to um you know jump in the cool swimming pool or visit your sick aunt or you know or practice the violin you got these different priorities clashing with each other and people differ in in how they they establish the balance there's an interesting conflict here between dan kahneman's insights and dan gilbert's views on happiness can you go through that yeah um gilbert's a gilbert's a friend of mine and and a huge help with the book because he thinks my book is total nonsense he thinks motivational pluralism is ridiculous hedonism is the way to go and uh and he's like spent the whole time pushing me and as he wrote the book and you know you you, you there's no better person than dan to um to be duking it out with as you try to make your way through so here's the issue and this is this is the insights of, of, of Dan Kahneman, which is um, there's two when we say happiness or pleasure, there's two very different things. So one thing is what you could call experienced experienced happiness. And the typical way to do this is you give somebody an iPhone and have it go off at random times during the day. And when it goes off, they say how happy they are. And so you have one and I have one and 500 other people have this. And then for each of us, we, we, just, we just sum up how happy we are from scale one to 10. Maybe whenever yours goes off, you're, you're an eight. Whenever mine goes off, I'm a four. You know, we, on average, eight, on average, four. You have more experienced happiness in your life than I do. But then there's something else we can do, which is we can just ask you, how happy are you? How satisfied are you with your life? Where does it scan on a scale of one to 10? You know, if 10 is the perfect life and zero is a life not worth living, where are you? People give you a number to that too. Maybe your number is seven. Maybe my number is six. These numbers correlate. So your your experienced happiness and your remembered happiness um, uh, are related. Not surprising. And they're both trying to respond to the same thing. So as your income goes up, they both go up. Diminishing returns, but they both go up. But they're different. You could be high in one and low in another. You could say, I am living the best life but most of the time in your life, you're doing difficult, unpleasant things. So you're low in that. Or you could say, 
you live this this you know this orgy of fun all the time you're having a tremendous time and then i sit and i ask you so so what do you think of your life and you say man my life sucks you know i'm having a lot of pleasure but i'm not adding anything to what i'm a parasite i'm a loser you feel really sad and then you go back to your your sex and your drugs and your rock and roll and you're really happy so the question is which one should we maximize if you choose and kahneman says uh you should maximize your remembered happiness your judgment that's what people want to do people don't just want to party and have a good time they want to um they want to be think they're living a worthwhile valuable life uh dan gilbert says you should maximize the day-to-day -day stuff your day-to-day -day experience you know if you spend 95 percent of your time having a really good time and then five percent of the time i ask you so how's your life and you say oh my life is disappointing and it sucks well on balance you're way ahead of the game don't take too seriously your your contemplative perspective and i'm more on danny kahneman's side but uh because i'm not a hedonist i think i think there's an, there, there's a real it if me or somebody i loved um lived their life say totally blitzed out on heroin and suppose they could do it in such a way it had no side effects they just were just in drooling with delight the whole time i'd say man what a waste that's not a good life that's a crap life you know do you remember the example from uh, robert nozick of the experience machine this is a great example where he asked people i could you know here's the deal I've got a machine here gonna you lie down i plug you into the machine and you will experience this life of extraordinary pleasure and satisfaction for the rest of your life. The rest of your natural life, you'll lie here, we'll have tubes giving you food, and you'll have this best dream ever. Do you want to do that? And Nozick says, absolutely not. He says, I don't want to think I fell in love. I want to fall in love. I don't want to think I climbed Mount Everest. I want to climb Mount Everest. I want to make a difference in the world. And many people, including me, wouldn't go into the machine even though we would get less pleasure. Now, I got to admit, there's some people who say, yeah, plug me in, man. Um, I would. But I think most of us wouldn't. Would you? No, I wouldn't. I thought no. about this long and hard. Yes. One of the things that I've got in my head, so the Dan Gilbert uh, thought experiment, he says, if you are contemplating for 5% of your life and you are reminded of the fact that you've lived it in a swimming pool for ages and you're going to feel bad, then you've got 95% yeah. that's good. This seems to be a selection effect for the sort of people typically that I associate with hedonists, the people who yes. are less ruminative, the ones that do less contemplation, the ones that are less introspective, whereas the people that I know who are more introspective seem to be more concerned with meaning. Now, perhaps that's yes. the outcome. They have managed to find a mode of attaining meaning over pleasure because pleasure would be reflected on more, which would not give them an actual sense of being well-lived. Have you considered that? If you're right, it solves, everybody gets what they want. The hedonist is, doesn't reflect at all and lives a life of pleasure. Um, the, the, somebody focused on meaning and purpose wouldn't enjoy all that time in a pool anyway because they'd be too busy thinking about meaning and purpose. So they, then, then they get what they want. But yeah, I, I think that's clever. I like that. But you can't make the problem go away. So here's one from, from Danny Kahneman. <laughs> which is, here's one from Danny Kahneman. It turns out that you have a really fun one-week vacation. You have a really fun two-week vacation. And later on, I ask you, how was your vacation? How do you remember it? And you would think 
if we were in some way rational and, we, and our remembered happiness was based on the sum of experienced happiness, um, you would think that um, you would remember the second, the two week one is twice as good as the first, the one week one, because it's twice as much fun. But we don't. So, nice vacation, man. It was good. You, it's what he calls duration neglect. Same for bad experiences. You know, I've sometimes been on a plane with, you know, no Wi-Fi and I forgot to bring a book and I'm uncomfortable. I'm in the middle seat and everything like that. And eight hours is twice as bad as four hours. But you're back at the hotel. All you remember was that flight sucked. And it doesn't suck twice as much. So, again, you have the question of what to maximize. So some people say, wow, that means I should take short vacations because I'm going to remember them the same anyway. And other people say, are you crazy? Who cares what you remember? It's what you experience. Mm. The interesting thing here, I thought about the remembering and the experiencing self a lot. And I came to the perhaps incorrect conclusion that because the remembering self lasts for far longer than the experiencing self, that optimizing for the remembering self makes sense, especially when you're younger. So yeah. there's actually an argument to be made that you should become more hedonic as you get toward old age. Also because you run out of time to reflect. Precisely. You know, if, I have an, if I have another six months to go, I shouldn't be piling up good memories. Well, everyone knows this. Live. Everybody knows this. Everyone knows this intrinsically. What would you do if it was your last day on earth? Oh, well, I'd steal a car and I'd get in an airplane yeah. and I'd do this thing. Well, what yeah, is yeah. that? Well, it's because you're going to sacrifice suffering and meaning in place of pleasure. So everyone in, in, intrinsically understands this. But yeah, I think, certainly for me with my constitution, I would just optimize as much as possible for living a life that when remembered, it, it feels like a life yeah. that was well lived. Um, but I wonder whether this, I wonder whether I'm missing something there. I wonder whether. No. Well, here's what, what Dan Gilbert would say you're missing, which is there are some experiences we go back over and over and over again, and we savor them. And the amount of time we spend savoring is actually longer than the experience itself. Yes. You know, um, sometimes, I don't know, I've, I've like done things that, you know, oh, this is so arduous and unpleasant, but I, they, I, I've looked at them off so often in my head, I spend more time looking at them than experiencing them. And then it's, even as a hedonist, everybody's happy because as a hedonist, it's the remembered self you're maximizing. But then there's something like the vacation. So think of a vacation you took two years ago. Maybe think about it a few times, but you don't spend a week of your life thinking about that vacation you took two years ago. Some experiences are barely referred back to. And then somebody like Dan Gilbert would say, it's a mistake to try to maximize how they're remembered as opposed to how they're experienced. Then you get into, and I'm sure you're aware of these examples, these true freaking paradoxes. So, and you know, this is why they gave Kahneman the Nobel Prize because of things like this. So there's the ones involving pain where the, the, he actually did this with real world colonoscopies back when they were more, more painful. So you take one that's excruciatingly painful and you stop it. And half the people get that. The other half get the same amount of pain, excruciatingly painful, then you stop it. Then some more mild pain. And then you ask them later, the two groups say, uh, which experience was worse? Either within group in some cases, between group and other ones. And what, pe what you find is that the experiences which had more total pain are remembered more positively 
than experiences that had less total pain because they ended on a on a on a better note. And we tend to remember endings. It's like you know, it, it suggests that when you go to the dentist and it's really freaking painful, and he says, "Okay, we're done." You should say, "Doc, could you like poke me just a bit so I'll remember it better?" And it's crazy. I remember reading something off the back of that. It might have been written by Kahneman or someone just interpreting his work, saying one of the most compassionate things that you can do for that your child the first time that they go to the dentist is to do exactly that, to ask them to extend the procedure just a little bit to try and downregulate the emotional trauma. But what's coming through in all of this is that we're not rational creatures and every experience, whether it be to do with meaning, morality, pain, pleasure, whatever, all of it is mediated by our interpretation of it and then our interpretation of our interpretation of it, both in the moment and after the event. And this framing response, the fact that we are at the mercy of what we thought happened and the story that we tell ourselves about it, that's the second order challenge that I think a lot of people have to get past. It's not just what happened to you. It's what you tell yourself about what happened to you. That's the difference that you were talking about earlier on between the difference between being homeless and going camping ostensibly isn't all that much. But yeah. one of them you chose to do it. The other one you have to do yes. I agree with every word of that, except for one word. I'm not sure it's not rational. I'm not sure. There's some cases where something is irrational. If it takes you away from your goals, if it violates axioms of logic, if it's internally inconsistent, the fact that how you see something affects how you experience it. It seems to be neither rational nor irrational in itself. It's just a way of doing it, you know. And like one of my interests is the pleasures we get from art and and our pleasures in general. And you know, if you're looking at the face of somebody you love, they look more attractive than if you look in the face of a, of a stranger, even if it's the same face. The people you love grow to look more attractive. It's not just that you say you love them more; they just honestly look more attractive to you. Is that irrational? Well, I don't know if, if there was like a rule saying that judgments of attractiveness has to be made on bone structure and symmetry and everything like that. Yeah, and then you, then you messed up. But who made that rule? If I say that my kid's art looks is the best looking art in the world, I guess that sounds kind of extreme. But if I enjoy art more, if I knew it was, if it was made by my kid than by a stranger or by Picasso than by a forger, again, it seems to be neither rational nor irrational. It's just a way in which we enjoy things. We, 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 we focus on contrast. We focus on context. Fasting feels differently. Camping is a <laughs> camping is a wonderful case because because I, I hate camping and I think you just summed up exactly why I hate camping because I can't I can't get the mental switch. I always feel like I'm a, I'm in a greatly unfortunate part of my life where I've lost my house, <laughs> and so <laughs> so it's kind of sad. Talking about um, wealth. And the relationship between wealth and meaning and happiness and satisfaction. What's the true red pill story about the relationship between wealth and happiness? Because I didn't realize that there was another yeah. there was another element to the after a particular level, your happiness doesn't increase anymore story. It, it's so it used to be, and it, soon enough, it used to be. Uh, even when I taught intro psych many years ago, I used to say, "Isn't it amazing?" money is unconnected to happiness which is what people believe and then it turns out no that's not true more money you have the happier you are both as individuals and also countries richer countries have happier people and if you think about it 
it's kind of weird we could have ever imagined it would be otherwise. Money buys you all sorts of things. It buys you, in a country like the United States, it, it helps, it buys you health. It buys you, and everywhere, it buys you security, safety, travel, time with friends, freedom from exploitation, cool stuff. It's just, it's, it, there's a lot of things to be said for money. But then the story was uh, that it, it tops out at a certain amount. And I think in the United States, when the study was done, it was about $80,000 a year. And then more money doesn't help. And uh, that would be like maybe 120000 right now. And, um, and then more studies started to come in. And it's by no means clear it's true. There are studies finding that millionaires make are happier than people of half a million and even a study finding that people who have over 10 million dollars are happier than people have who have between one and ten million dollars the the difference is not huge i mean it makes sense that money would matter that the difference between making twenty thousand and forty thousand is enormous the difference between making you know five hundred and twenty thousand five hundred and forty thousand is tiny they're just diminishing returns kind of need to do on a on a log scale. But still, there's reason to believe that the more money you get, the happier you are, all the way up as far up as we can measure it. And I think part of this is because that money's tied to status. And status makes us happy. You know, if if you know if if you have a hundred million and I have fifty million and um and we both know this, you might be happier. You might just say, man, I got more money than this guy. Even though it might be hard to think of anything tangible you could do that I can't do. I was talking about universal basic income with a behavioral geneticist called yeah. Catherine Page Hardin. And yeah. I'm she a big was, fan of Page Hardin's work. She, she's great. I really, really enjoyed that conversation with her. Um, but I put to her the one of the challenges around her proposed safety net for people that they shouldn't fall below with regards to income because there is a minimum level of humanness that everybody is allowed to have. Mm -hmm. My argument was, and this is something that I hadn't thought of before, because we are inherently status-seeking creatures, I don't think that there is a level of UBI that will make people satisfied. I think that you get status-seeking immediately from everybody, and as soon as you see the person that decides to work as well as get UBI or work instead of get UBI gets more than you, immediately, until you've completely flattened that curve, there is an argument to be made that no one's going to be happy until we have everybody at whatever it is, number 7 billion, 700. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting one, thinking about how status plays into, status is, is contrary to this sort of utilitarian approach for money. Yes. And in some way, I think it's a good thing. So put aside the details of UBI, because there's a lot of debate over this is how to do it. But imagine UBI or, or any sort of excellent safety net welfare system. Uh, the argument there is people will come out of it, um, you know, well-fed and get medical care and have housing. They don't have to go camping. They just, and, and everything is all, the basic needs are satisfied. Their children are safe. And that's terrific. Will it make them happy? Um, certainly happier than, you know, if, they have, if they're dying of an untreated infection. Um, but happy? I don't know. I think a lot of happiness is tied into... Um, status and also tied into accomplishment in ways which which cross cut it um you know i would rather be um i, I have a guest that uh, somebody who won the nobel prize in literature even if she doesn't make that much money 
is is a lot happier and satisfied than some hedge fund manager. But you're right, money itself will not could satisfy your basic needs, and it's it's plainly a plus. But it's but there's more. And and UBI will the, the problem with status, by the way, which is is that it's inherently zero sum. It gets complicated. The only thing that makes them so so if you're at the top, I'm not at the top. And somebody got to be at the bottom. The only thing that that ameliorates that concern, which is kind of a like, and it's it's a position that Will Wilkinson, who's a policy expert, pointed out, though I think he now doesn't believe it, is that one of the good things about capitalism is that there could be a whole lot of status hierarchies. So you know maybe um, maybe you make more money than me, but uh, my kids are better looking. Maybe. You know, maybe you're in better shape, but but check out all the Pokemon uh, cards I've collected. You know, and and so in a, in a good world, any schmo can find a place where they get at least they do they do fair enough to get respect, and um, and none of very little of this has to do with money. And then money will satisfy the basic needs, but but it's nice to have a world. And I don't think I'm disagreeing with Paige Harden here. Nice to have a world where the, the the very the very uneven distribution of gifts that people possess is set up so that everybody has a chance to do pretty well in some domain or another yeah it was an interesting conversation i really really enjoyed i, I found her fascinating because she comes at behavioral genetics which for better or worse is a subject area that has been adopted by people that are more right-leaning and she has a quite a left-leaning perspective about how she wants the country to be run and so on and so forth. Yes. One of the things that I realized was that a lot of the problems that she was highlighting could just be fixed by having a better government. So for instance, she brought up healthcare and she said that healthcare should be available to all. To make it available to all, you need to have sufficient money and UBI so that people can pay for the healthcare. I was like, well, we fixed that problem in the UK and we don't have UBI. We've just nationalized yeah. healthcare. So then if you can nationalize a bunch of other things and you end up with everyone's got a soup kitchen that delivers direct to their door yeah. through some fancy teleporting technology in 100 years' time and you can just teleport food into everyone's houses, then you go, okay, there could be a point where you get to where you don't need UBI and all of her requirements for this minimum level of humanness yeah. is met, but you still have this desire for status and it's inherently going to be unfulfilling. I don't think that UBI can counter against status. And as you said as well, this desire for accomplishment and to feel like you're actually achieving something. Um, th th this is the thing that people always bring up that you spend all of this time on the couch and you just think that the people who no longer need to work, are, they're going to go out into the fields and start writing poetry. Um, I, I think that there is, I know that the, the helplessness and the sense of, of uh, pointlessness is potentially going to going to come in. Some people find even from a shitty job they find meaning. You know, some of the ones yeah. that you I've got friends that are nurses and doctors and they will self-describe their jobs as shitty. They'll tell me they're doing a 70-hour week and they'll hate it, but they get a huge amount of meaning from it. So, yeah, it's a it's an interesting blend. You you talked about something that I thought was quite interesting as well, the role of sacrifice. What is the the place of sacrifice? Why does it play a role here? You think of in a religious context? No, in or, the book. Um, so I, I have a, a discussion of sacrifice in the context of religion. And in the context, and again, I mean, 
when I talk about it, I get into a topic you and I haven't discussed yet, which is, um, which is what do you do with unchosen suffering? So right now we've been just talking about the trade-offs people give, the way people choose in order to get pleasure, the way people, the choices people make in order to get meaning and morality and purpose. But, um, but often a lot of the suffering we have in life is unchosen. And there, I'm, I'm actually a lot less optimistic. I'm not one of these people who think, oh, chosen, you know, bad stuff happens to you, you get stronger, you get more resilient, you do post-traumatic growth. I don't deny this happens some of the time, but, um, but it, it, it is uh, by far not uh, a regular psychological rule. We tend to be more resilient than we think we are. But growth, I'm skeptical about it. And then you get frameworks where we try to explain this. We try to make sense of things. You know, some people think that we've invented religion because we want to figure out where the universe came from, where animals came from, and, and, and natural phenomena. But I don't think we care that much about those things. Sometimes scientists, scholars do. But we care deeply about why we suffer and why is it you and not me or me is not you. Um, why did this person die and not that person? And religion provides a framework and a lot of religious rituals and religious activities are attempts to manipulate the laws of fate. This includes sacrifice. It includes a lot of chosen suffering with the context of religion, where you're trying to sort of take away the randomness from the world. You want to lend a cohesive narrative that explains why something's happened. Yeah. And, you know, so one narrative is, you know, everything happens for a reason. That's not really a narrative. It's just saying there is a narrative. And, and um, I think I've done actually some research with this uh, wonderful person, Konika Banerjee, who's my student. And we, um, we asked people to remember significant events of the last couple of years where, um, you know, uh, good events like weddings, children being born, bad events like death of loved ones. And then we asked them, is there a narrative? Does it happen for a reason? Did it happen to send you a message? And, um, and what we find is religious people are much more likely than atheists to say yes. But even atheists um, will often say yes to this, will often see a, a narrative behind it. And of course, religion provides a narrative. It wasn't random. God is testing you. You are reliving the suffering of Christ. Um, God, we ignore God when he whispers, but, but, but he comes in loud and clear when we suffer. And it is a way of, of calling his attention calling our attention to him, and so on and so forth. Um, it's what, to go back to Dan Gilbert, part of what we call a psychological immune system, which is we're often much better than we think we are at dealing with bad stuff because we're very quick to tell a story in which it actually isn't bad. But I got to say, I actually think, you know, it happens for a reason. It's kind of a, often a very corrosive, very bad thing to believe. I think it can reassure us. But it could also lead us to be cruel to others. You know, you have cancer. Man, it happens for a reason. What do you do to deserve that? Or maybe it'll make you grow. Good news, pal. You know, it's just, it, it leads to, it, I think we have to acknowledge between adults that often the best response is, man, that sucks. That's just bad, shitty luck. I'm so sorry. Um, and it also leads to sort of passivity, where there's a whole lot of suffering in the world. And to say that suffering is there for a reason, it's God's will is a recipe for doing nothing. There's a part of me that feels a little bit uncomfortable when 
someone goes through something and they look back on it and say that this happened for a reason because look at the position that I'm in now. And the reason that I don't like it when people give those explanations is it takes away the agency and the glory from what they did to turn that bad situation into the good one that yeah. they're now in. You know, you, you'd say that this thing happened. You got into a car crash. Everybody, everybody that got into a really bad car wreck three years ago. And now he's in this awesome design position at Apple and he's got all of this stuff. And he's never said that. But I could imagine in a different world, somebody that said, yeah. you know, look at look at where this particular accident got me to. And now I'm in this amazing situation. I'm working for Apple and I've got my strength back and I'm running and I'm training. I'm doing this stuff. Well, what's the difference between that caused you to be in this situation and you overcame that situation to now have this life that you're so happy about leading? I agree. It, it That sort of narrative takes the credit away from the person who, um, you know, to think, to think that I got this car accident and that catapulted me into my career strips you of, of, of the credit you'd serve for the fact that, that, that no, you, you ended up uh, having to struggle and having to recover. But so that in one way, it's an awful thing for somebody to say. On the other hand, if you don't say something like that, it forces you to confront the terrible randomness of life which is just just freaking terrible. I mean, anybody you love could be snatched away in a second. You know, anytime your phone rings, it could give you the worst news in the world. And if there's no narrative, that's what we're stuck with. Have you heard of com compensatory control? I can guess what it is, but, but, but uh, make me not guess. So I what, saw this what a year ago. So it's Matthew Syed. He wrote a piece in The Times. Uh, why conspiracy theories and demagogues spread in times of worry and uncertainty? Psychologists have cons uh, cons conducted experiments to shed light on why people lose or at least suspend rationality. One experiment asked people to imagine going to a doctor to hear an uncertain medical diagnosis. Such people were significantly more likely to express the belief that God was in control of their lives. Another asked participants to imagine a time of deep uncertainty when they feared for their jobs or the health of their children. They were far more likely to see a pattern in meaningless static or to infer that two random yeah. events were connected. This is such a common finding that psychologists have given it a name, compensatory control. When uncertain, when randomness upon our li intrudes upon our lives, we respond by reintroducing order in some way. Superstitions and conspiracy theories speak to this need. It is not enough to accept that important events are, f are shaped by random forces. This is why it makes much more sense to believe that our lives are threatened by the grand plan of some malign scientist than the chance mutation of a silly little microbe. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. That rings true. It, and it explains, you know, what would otherwise be paradoxical which is after terrible things happen, you would imagine people would abandon their faith. You know, if you believe in a loving God protecting you and then, you know, you lose family to 9-11 or the pandemic or whatever, it just kind of makes sense to say, well, I'm going to lower, lower, lower the priors on that belief of a loving, protective God. It's exactly the opposite. You know, bad things happen and, people, and people's belief strengthens. And I think it is a desire for, um, for control, for a narrative. And, uh, and more of a willingness or propensity to see it. And then sometimes you get, and I think some of this is Adam Galinsky's work, you get, um, you get a, a, a sort of hoping to fiddle with things, hoping to use karma productively. 
So in some studies, before somebody is about to go through, discover um, whether or not they have a, an illness or before they go to apply for a job, they're more likely to donate to charity. Kind of thinking at some level, maybe not even consciously, that, well, this will tip the goods. You know, this will, uh, this will get the deity's attention and uh, his love will shine upon me and give me good fortune. And that, and you know, you talk about, we, we push back and forth about rational, irrational. I think a lot of that's fairly irrational, but it, it, is a, it is a powerful tendency. Are there any stories from the book that were your favorites that we haven't touched on? Oh gosh, we we um we hit a lot of them. Um, I think we I think we uh, we hit them on. You know, my I, I love the the fact that uh, over and over again the same things converge. Viktor Frankl and um, have we talked about Viktor Frankl? You and I? Nope, not yet. So so we'll end with that then, because um, this is um, my subtitle. The search for meaning is a is a shout out to his book Man's Search for Meaning. So he was a, a, a Jew in Austria, was a psychiatrist who um, worked with suicide, suicidal adolescents. And uh, when Hitler came to power, he could have left, but he didn't. His, his elderly parents were, uh, were there, and they couldn't, they couldn't leave. And he ended up getting swooped up and caught in concentration camps in uh, Dachau and Auschwitz. And he was always a scientist, and he asked himself the question, what distinguishes the people who kill themselves or give up they just stop eating or they actively kill them they run you know they, they, they make a run for it knowing they're going to be shot and so on from those who are resilient and those who hold on and he said it's not like cheerfulness or any obvious personality trait it's whether or not you possess meaning and uh that you have a, a reason to live you know some some sort of quote that uh those who find a why in life can bear with almost any how and um and I feel this uh, this jibes well with a lot of the way people are thinking about it and the way I've sort of built my book around. The story, is it Viktor Frankl that talks about the stories of when they were made to move bags of wet salt or sand from one side of the encampment to the other, and then once they had done, they were just told to move it back? Is that from... I don't story? remember that story. Well, but, I know that the, the story that I'm pulling it from is some Jewish concentration camp in World War II, and the point was that there was no inherent meaning in the work yes. because once you'd moved it it was moved back and i'm not the most diy handyman person in the world i'm waiting for whatever switch my dad has to drop in the back of my head but my business partner is opening a bar in newcastle where i live and i offered my time useless as it is to say look i will come and paint walls and clean up and sand things and do whatever and as I was doing it, I don't, I haven't done work like this for a long time. You know, two full days of manual labor, of sanding water, concrete walls to give them a nice shine, or cleaning stuff up, or whatever it might be. And um, upon doing that, it, I reflected on the work of Jewish concentration camp uh, prisoners being made to do something that is so pointless. Because even at the end of the day of this work that was pretty mind-numbing, apart from the fact I had some good podcasts on, um. I was able to look at this wall and say, that's the, that's the fucking, that's the back wall of this bar. Yeah. And it looks, yeah. it looks really quite nice actually. And I've, I didn't paint it and I didn't plaster it and I, I didn't do any of the other stuff, but I had a tiny little bit of a contribution. And now every time that I go into this bar, I'll be able to look at that wall and think, I, I fucking, I did that for a day and a half. You I did that. 
you helped put a man on the moon. You I, were like, a, I helped open a bar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the, we were looking at the, the, the British cover, the UK cover is, uh, is of, of the book is, so oh, thank you. It's like the fate and it's a gorgeous, gorgeous cover, but the American cover, I guess I'll send you a picture of it, is different. And it is uh, a picture of uh, Sisyphus, the famous, the, the, the famous myth. And the myth is, is, is the story you're telling about the concentration camps of, of someone condemned to roll a boulder up the hill. And when it, and before it gets to the top, it rolls down and, you know, rinse and repeat for eternity. And, you know, meaning requires an endpoint. You don't have to make it to the endpoint. You know, your work would be satisfying even if the bar was shuttered halfway through. But you have to be working towards the endpoint. You have to be working towards the goal. And without that, you know, work ceases to be satisfying and just becomes misery. If you were going to apply the sweet spot, if you were going to do applied sweet spot, are there any takeaways that you think should inform people of how they live or view their lives, or is it affected the way that you look at yours at all? I'm not a, I'm not a takeaway kind of guy for this. Uh, it's it, the book is really honestly is an exploration of why we do what we do, and less of talent. My last book about empathy was more in your face and telling people to do stuff, and I just wanted to kind of step back. However, um, yeah, I become more appreciative of flow. I'm going to read the book uh, you recommended, um, but of, of, of getting flow. And I've also became more familiar with the literature suggesting that regardless of whether hedonism, pleasure, happiness is the right goal, um, seeking pleasure and happiness seems to be kind of a dead end. Uh, you know, there's a strong relationship between people who think seeking happiness is very important and people who end up depressed and anxious and very unhappy. I think happiness and pleasure is a goal but it's the kind of goal you get while you're doing other things so um so so working on a book has made me appreciate more the parts of my life that aren't that much fun but are directed towards a purpose and the goal i love it paul bloom ladies and gentlemen the sweet spot suffering pleasure and the key to a good life will be linked in the show notes below and if people want to harass you on the internet where should they go uh, you should probably hit me up on Twitter. I'm still uh, Paul Bloom at Yale. Paul Bloom uh, no longer at Yale. Paul Bloom at Paul Bloom no longer, yeah, yeah, but I, I lose my blue check mark if I change the, <laughs> the Twitter handle. So, and uh, on my web my webpage, paulbloom.net. Amazing. Thanks, Paul. Uh, uh, thanks. This has been tons of fun. Thank you. Love.